0: chapter 8.1 of the 911 commission report this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to find out how you can volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by leanne howlett the 911 commission report chapter 8.1 the system was blinking red The Summer of Threat As 2001 began, counterterrorism officials were receiving frequent but fragmentary reports about threats. Indeed, there appeared to be possible threats almost everywhere the United States had interests, including at home. To understand how the escalation in threat reporting was handled in the summer of 2001, it is useful to understand how threat information in general is collected and conveyed. Information is collected through several methods, including signals, intelligence, and interviews of human sources, and gathered into intelligence reports. Depending on the source and nature of the reporting, these reports may be highly classified, and therefore tightly held, or less sensitive and widely disseminated to state and local law enforcement agencies. Threat reporting must be disseminated either through individual reports or through threat advisories such advisories intended to alert their recipients may address a specific threat or be a general warning because the amount of reporting is so voluminous only a select fraction can be chosen for briefing the president and senior officials during two thousand one director of central intelligence george tenet was briefed regularly regarding threats and other operational information relating to osama bin laden he in turn met daily with president bush who was briefed by the CIA through what is known as the President's Daily Brief, PDB. Each PDB consists of a series of six to eight relatively short articles or briefs covering a broad array of topics. CIA staff decides which subjects are the most important on any given day. There were more than 40 intelligence articles in the PDBs from January 20th to September 10th, 2001, that related to bin Laden. The PDB is considered highly sensitive and is distributed to only a handful of high-level officials. The Senior Executive Intelligence Brief, SEIB, distributed to a broader group of officials, has a similar format and generally covers the same subjects as the PDB. It usually contains less information so as to protect sources and methods. Like their predecessors, the Attorney General, the FBI Director, and Richard Clarke, the National Security Council, NSC, counterterrorism coordinator, all received the SEIB, not the PDB. Clark and his staff had extensive access to terrorism reporting, but they did not have access to internal, non-disseminated information at the National Security Agency, NSA, CIA, or FBI. The drumbeat begins in the spring of 2001 the level of reporting on terrorist threats and planned attacks increased dramatically to its highest level since the millennium alert at the end of march the intelligence community disseminated a terrorist threat advisory indicating a heightened threat of Sunni extremist terrorist attacks against u s facilities personnel and other interests on march 23rd in connection with discussions about possibly reopening pennsylvania avenue in front of the white house Clark warned National Security Adviser Condoleezza Rice that domestic or foreign terrorists might use a truck bomb that a weapon of choice on Pennsylvania Avenue. That would result, he said, in the destruction of the West Wing and parts of the residence. He also told her that he thought there were terrorist cells within the United States, including al-Qaeda. The next week, Rice was briefed on the activities of Abu Zubaydah and on CIA efforts to locate him. As pointed out in Chapter 6, Abu Zubaydah had been a major figure in the millennium plots. Over the next few weeks, the CIA repeatedly issued warnings, including calls from DCI tenant to Clark, that Abu Zubaydah was planning an operation in the near future. One report cited a source indicating that Abu Zubaydah was planning an attack in a country that CIA analysts thought might be Israel or perhaps Saudi Arabia or India. Clark relayed these reports to Rice. In response to these threats, the FBI sent a message to all its field offices on April 13th summarizing reporting to date. It asked the offices to task all resources, including human sources and electronic databases, for any information pertaining to current operational activities relating to Sunni extremism. It did not suggest that there was a domestic threat. The Interagency Counterterrorism Security Group CSG that Clark chaired, discussed the Abu Zubaydah reports on April 19th. The next day, a briefing to top officials reported, Bin Laden planning multiple operations. When the deputies discussed al-Qaeda policy on April 30th, they began with a briefing on the threat. In May 2001, the drumbeat of reporting grew louder with reports to top officials that Bin Laden public profile may presage attack and Bin Laden Networks plans advancing. In early May, a walk-in to the FBI claimed there was a plan to launch attacks on London, Boston, and New York. Attorney General John Ashcroft was briefed by the CIA on May 15th regarding al-Qaeda generally and the current threat reporting specifically. The next day brought a report that a phone call to a U.S. embassy had warned that bin Laden supporters were planning an attack in the United States using high explosives. On May 17th, Based on the previous day's report, the first item on the CSG's agenda was UBL Operation Planned in U.S. The anonymous caller's tip could not be corroborated. Late May brought reports of a possible hostage plot against Americans abroad to force the release of prisoners, including Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the blind Sheikh who was serving a life sentence for his role in the 1993 plot to blow up sites in New York City. The reporting noted that operatives might opt to hijack an aircraft or storm a U.S. embassy. This report led to a Federal Aviation Administration, FAA Information Circular, to airlines noting the potential for an airline hijacking to free terrorists incarcerated in the United States. Other reporting mentioned that Abu Zubaydah was planning an attack, possibly against Israel, and expected to carry out several more if things went well. On May 24th alone, counterterrorism officials grappled with reports alleging plots in Yemen and Italy, as well as a report about a cell in Canada that an anonymous caller had claimed might be planning an attack against the United States. Reports similar to many of these were made available to President Bush in morning intelligence briefings with DCI Tennant, usually attended by Vice President Dick Cheney and National Security Advisor Rice. While these briefings discussed general threats to attack America and American interests, the specific threats mentioned in these briefings were all overseas. On May 29, Clark suggested that Rice asked DCI Tenet what more the United States could do to stop Abu Zubaydah from launching a series of major terrorist attacks, probably on Israeli targets, but possibly on U.S. facilities. Clark wrote to Rice and her deputy, Stephen Hadley. When these attacks occur, as they likely will, we will wonder what more we could have done to stop them. In May, CIA Counterterrorist Center (CTC) Chief Kofor Black told Rice that the current threat level was a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10, as compared to an 8 during the millennium. High Probability of Near-Term Spectacular Attacks Threat reports surged in June and July, Reaching an even higher peak of urgency, the summer threats seemed to be focused on Saudi Arabia, Israel, Bahrain, Kuwait, Yemen, and possibly Rome. But the danger could be anywhere, including a possible attack on the g eight summit in Genoa. A June twelfth CIA report passing along biographical background information on several terrorists mentioned in commenting on Khaled Sheikh Mohammed that he was recruiting people to travel to the United States to meet with colleagues already there so that they might conduct terrorist attacks on bin Laden's behalf. On June 22, the CIA notified all its station chiefs about intelligence suggesting a possible al-Qaeda suicide attack on a U.S. target over the next few days. DCI Tenet asked that all U.S. ambassadors be briefed. That same day, the State Department notified all embassies of the terrorist threat and updated its worldwide public warning. In June, the State Department initiated the Visa Express Program in Saudi Arabia as a security measure, in order to keep long lines of foreigners away from vulnerable embassy spaces. The program permitted visa applications to be made through travel agencies instead of directly at the embassy or consulate. A terrorist threat advisory distributed in late June indicated a high probability of near-term spectacular terrorist attacks resulting in numerous casualties other report titles warned bin laden attacks may be imminent and bin laden and associates making near-term threats the latter reported multiple attacks planned over the coming days including a severe blow against u.s and israeli interests during the next two weeks on june 21st near the height of the threat reporting U.S. Central Command raised the force protection condition level for U.S. troops in six countries to the highest possible level, Delta. The U.S. 5th Fleet moved out of its port in Bahrain, and a U.S. Marine Corps exercise in Jordan was halted. U.S. embassies in the Persian Gulf conducted an emergency security review, and the embassy in Yemen was closed. The CSG had foreign emergency response teams, known as FESs, ready to move on four hours' notice and kept up the terrorism alert posture on a rolling 24-hour basis. On June 25, Clark warned Rice and Hadley that six separate intelligence reports showed al-Qaeda personnel warning of a pending attack. An Arabic television station reported bin Laden's pleasure with al-Qaeda leaders who were saying that the next weeks will witness important surprises and that U.S. and Israeli interests will be targeted. Al-Qaeda also released a new recruitment and fundraising tape. Clark wrote that this was all too sophisticated to be merely a psychological operation to keep the United States on edge, and the CIA agreed. The intelligence reporting consistently described the upcoming attacks as occurring on a calamitous level, indicating that they would cause the world to be in turmoil and that they would consist of possible multiple, but not necessarily simultaneous, attacks. On June 28, Clark wrote Rice that the pattern of al-Qaeda activity, indicating attack planning over the past six weeks, had reached a crescendo. A series of new reports continued to convince me and analysts at State, CIA, DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and NSA that a major terrorist attack or series of attacks is likely in July, he noted. One al-Qaeda intelligence report warned that something very, 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 very big was about to happen, and most of bin Laden's network was reportedly anticipating the attack. In late June, the CIA ordered all its station chiefs to share information on al-Qaeda with their host governments and to push for immediate disruptions of cells. The headline of a June 30th briefing to top officials was stark, Bin Laden Planning High-Profile Attacks. The report stated that bin Laden operatives expected near-term attacks to have dramatic consequences of catastrophic proportions. That same day, Saudi Arabia declared its highest level of terror alert. Despite evidence of delays possibly caused by heightened U.S. security, the planning for attacks was continuing. On July second, the FBI Counterterrorism Division sent a message to federal agencies and state and local law enforcement agencies summarizing information regarding threats from bin Laden. It warned that there was an increased volume of threat reporting, indicating a potential for attacks against U.S. targets abroad from groups aligned with or sympathetic to Osama bin Laden. Despite the general warnings, the message further stated, "...the FBI has no information indicating a credible threat of terrorist attack in the United States." However, it went on to emphasize that the possibility of attack in the United States could not be discounted. It also noted that the July 4th holiday might heighten the threats. The report asked recipients to exercise extreme vigilance and report suspicious activities to the FBI. It did not suggest specific actions that they should take to prevent attacks. Disruption operations against al-Qaeda-affiliated cells were launched involving 20 countries, Several terrorist operatives were detained by foreign governments, possibly disrupting operations in the Gulf and Italy, and perhaps averting attacks against two or three U.S. embassies. Clark and others told us of a particular concern about possible attacks on the 4th of July. After it passed uneventfully, the CSG decided to maintain the alert. To enlist more international help, Vice President Cheney contacted Saudi Crown Prince Abdullah on July 5th. Hadley apparently called European counterparts, while Clark worked with senior officials in the Gulf. In late July, because of threats, Italy closed the airspace over Genoa and mounted anti-aircraft batteries at the Genoa airport during the G-8 summit, which President Bush attended. At home, the CSG arranged for the CIA to brief intelligence and security officials from several domestic agencies. On July 5th, Representatives from the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, the FAA, the Coast Guard, the Secret Service, Customs, the CIA, and the FBI met with Clark to discuss the current threat. Attendees report that they were told not to disseminate the threat information they received at the meeting. They interpreted this direction to mean that although they could brief their superiors, they could not send out advisories to the field. An NSC official recalls a somewhat different emphasis, saying that attendees were asked to take the information back to their home agencies and do what you can with it, subject to classification and distribution restrictions. A representative from the INS asked for a summary of the information that she could share with field offices. She never received one. That same day, the CIA briefed Attorney General Ashcroft on the al-Qaeda threat warning that a significant terrorist attack was imminent. Ashcroft was told that preparations for multiple attacks were in late stages or already complete and that little additional warning could be expected. The briefing addressed only threats outside the United States. The next day, the CIA representative told the CSG that al-Qaeda members believed the upcoming attack would be spectacular, qualitatively different from anything they had done to date apparently as a result of the july fifth meeting with clark the interagency committee on federal building security was tasked to examine security measures this committee met on july ninth when thirty seven officials from twenty seven agencies and organizations were briefed on the current threat level in the united states they were told that not only the threat reports from abroad but also the recent convictions in the east africa bombings trial the conviction of ahmed and the just-returned Khobar Towers' indictments reinforced the need to exercise extreme vigilance. Attendees were expected to determine whether their respective agencies needed enhanced security measures. On July eighteenth, two 2001, the State Department provided a warning to the public regarding possible terrorist attacks in the Arabian Peninsula. Acting FBI Director Thomas Picard told us he had one of his periodic conference calls with all special agents in charge on July 19th. He said one of the items he mentioned was the need, in light of increased threat reporting, to have evidence response teams ready to move at a moment's notice in case of an attack. He did not task field offices to try to determine whether any plots were being considered within the United States or to take any action to disrupt any such plots. In mid-July, reporting started to indicate that bin Laden's plans had been delayed, maybe for as long as two months, but not abandoned. On July twenty third, the lead item for CSG discussion was still the al-Qaeda threat, and it included mention of suspected terrorist travel to the United States. On July thirty first, an FAA circular appeared alerting the aviation community to reports of possible near-term terrorist operations particularly on the Arabian Peninsula and or Israel. It stated that the FAA had no credible evidence of specific plans to attack U.S. civil aviation, though it noted that some of the currently active terrorist groups were known to plan and train for hijackings and were able to build and conceal sophisticated explosive devices in luggage and consumer products. Tennant told us that in his world, the system was blinking red. By late July, Tennant said, it could not get any worse. Not everyone was convinced. Some asked whether all these threats might just be deception. On June 30th, the SEIB contained an article titled Bin Laden Threats Are Real. Yet Hadley told Tenet in July that Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz questioned the reporting. Perhaps Bin Laden was trying to study U.S. reactions. Tenent replied that he had already addressed the Defense Department's questions on this point. The reporting was convincing. To give a sense of his anxiety at the time, one senior official in the counterterrorist center told us that he and a colleague were considering resigning in order to go public with their concerns. The Calm Before the Storm On July twenty seventh, Clark informed Rice and Hadley that the spike in intelligence about a near-term al-Qaeda attack had stopped. He urged keeping readiness high during the August vacation period, warning that another report suggested an attack had just been postponed for a few months, but would still happen. On August 1st, the FBI issued an advisory that in light of the increased volume of threat reporting and the upcoming anniversary of the East Africa Embassy bombings, increased attention should be paid to security planning. It noted that although most of the reporting indicated a potential for attacks on U.S. interests abroad, the possibility of an attack in the United States could not be discounted. On August third, the intelligence community issued an advisory concluding that the threat of impending al-Qaeda attacks would likely continue indefinitely. Citing threats in the Arabian Peninsula, Jordan, Israel, and Europe, the advisory suggested that al-Qaeda was lying in wait and searching for gaps in security before moving forward with the planned attacks. During the spring and summer of 2001, President Bush had on several occasions asked his briefers whether any of the threats pointed to the United States. Reflecting on these questions, the CIA decided to write a briefing article summarizing its understanding of this danger. Two CIA analysts involved in preparing this briefing article believed it represented an opportunity to communicate their view that the threat of a bin Laden attack in the United States remained both current and serious. The result was an article in the August 6 Presidential Daily Brief titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. It was the 36th PDB item briefed so far that year that related to bin Laden or al-Qaeda and the first devoted to the possibility of an attack in the United States. The following is the text of an item from the Presidential Daily Brief received by President George W. Bush on August 6, 2001. Redacted material is indicated by brackets. Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. Clandestine foreign government and media reports indicate Bin Laden, since 1997, has wanted to conduct terrorist attacks in the U.S. Bin Laden implied in U.S. television interviews in 1997 and 1998 that his followers would follow the example of World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Yousef and bring the fighting to America. After U.S. missile strikes on his base in Afghanistan in 1998, bin Laden told followers he wanted to retaliate in Washington according to a redacted material service. An Egyptian Islamic Jihad, EIJ, operative told an redacted material service at the same time that bin Laden was planning to exploit the operative's access to the U.S. to mount a terrorist strike. The millennium plotting in Canada in 1999 may have been part of bin Laden's first serious attempt to implement a terrorist strike in the U.S. Convicted plotter Ahmed Rassam has told the FBI that he conceived the idea to attack Los Angeles International Airport himself, but that bin Laden lieutenant Abu Zubaydah encouraged him and helped facilitate the operation. Rassam also said that in 1998, Abu Zubaydah was planning his own U.S. attack rassam says bin laden was aware of the los angeles operation although bin laden has not succeeded his attacks against the u s embassies in kenya and tanzania in 1998 demonstrate that he prepares operations years in advance and is not deterred by setbacks bin laden associates surveilled our embassies in nairobi and dar es salaam as early as 1993 and some members of the Nairobi cell planning the bombings were arrested and deported in 1997. Al-Qaeda members, including some who are U.S. citizens, have resided in or traveled to the U.S. for years, and the group apparently maintains a support structure that could aid attacks. Two Al-Qaeda members found guilty in the conspiracy to bomb our embassies in East Africa were U.S. citizens, and a senior EIJ member lived in California in the mid-1990s. A clandestine source said in 1998 that a bin Laden cell in New York was recruiting Muslim American youth for attacks. We have not been able to corroborate some of the more sensational threat reporting, such as that from a redacted material service in 1998, saying that bin Laden wanted to hijack a U.S. aircraft to gain the release of blind Sheikh Omar Abd al-Rahman and other U.S.-held extremists. Nevertheless. FBI information since that time indicates patterns of suspicious activity in this country consistent with preparations for hijackings or other types of attacks, including recent surveillance of federal buildings in New York. The FBI is conducting approximately 70 full-field investigations throughout the U.S. that it considers bin Laden-related. CIA and the FBI are investigating a call to our embassy in the UAE in May saying that a group of Bin Laden supporters was in the U.S. planning attacks with explosives. The President told us the August 6th report was historical in nature. President Bush said the article told him that al-Qaeda was dangerous, which he said he had known since he had become President. The President said Bin Laden had long been talking about his desire to attack America. He recalled some operational data on the FBI and remembered thinking it was heartening that 70 investigations were underway. As best he could recollect, Rice had mentioned that the Yemeni surveillance of a federal building in New York had been looked into in May and June, but there was no actionable intelligence. He did not recall discussing the August sixth report with the Attorney General or whether Rice had done so. He said that if his advisors had told them there was a cell in the United States, they would have moved to take care of it. That never happened. Although the following days SEIB repeated the title of this PDB, it did not contain the reference to hijackings, the alert in New York, the alleged casing of buildings in New York, the threat phoned in to the embassy, or the fact that the FBI had approximately 70 ongoing bin Laden-related investigations. No CSG or other NSC meeting was held to discuss the possible threat of a strike in the United States as a result of this report. Late in the month, a foreign service reported that Abu Zubaydah was considering mounting terrorist attacks in the United States after postponing possible operations in Europe. No targets, timing, or method of attack were provided. We have found no indication of any further discussion before September 11th among the President and his top advisors of the possibility of a threat of an al-Qaeda attack in the United States. DCI Tenet visited President Bush in Crawford, Texas on August 17th and participated in PDB briefings of the President between August 31st, after the President had returned to Washington, and September 10th, But Tennant does not recall any discussions with the President of the domestic threat during this period. Most of the intelligence community recognized in the summer of 2001 that the number and severity of threat reports were unprecedented. Many officials told us that they knew something terrible was planned, and they were desperate to stop it. Despite their large number, the threats received contained few specifics regarding time, place, method, or target. Most suggested that attacks were planned against targets overseas. Others indicated threats against unspecified U.S. interests. We cannot say for certain whether these reports, as dramatic as they were, related to the 9-11 attacks. Government Response to the Threats National Security Advisor Rice told us that the CSG was the nerve center for running the crisis, although other senior officials were involved over the course of the summer. In addition to his daily meetings with President Bush and weekly meetings to go over other issues with Rice, Tenet was speaking regularly with Secretary of State Colin Powell and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. The foreign policy principals routinely talked on the telephone every day on a variety of topics. Hadley told us that before 9-11, he and Rice did not feel they had the job of coordinating domestic agencies. They felt that Clark and the CSG, part of the NSC, were the NSC's bridge between foreign and domestic threats. There was a clear disparity in the levels of response to foreign versus domestic threats. Numerous actions were taken overseas to disrupt possible attacks, enlisting foreign partners to upset terrorist plans, closing embassies, moving military assets out of the way of possible harm. Far less was done domestically, in part, surely, because to the extent that specifics did exist, they pertained to threats overseas. As noted earlier, a threat against the embassy in Yemen quickly resulted in its closing. Possible domestic threats were more vague. When reports did not specify where the attacks were to take place, officials presumed that they would again be overseas, though they did not rule out a target in the United States. Each of the FBI threat advisories made this point. Clark mentioned to National Security Advisor Rice at least twice that al-Qaeda sleeper cells were likely in the United States. In January 2001, Clark forwarded a strategy paper to Rice warning that al-Qaeda had a presence in the United States. He noted that two key al-Qaeda members in the Jordanian cell involved in the Millennium Plot were naturalized U.S. citizens, and that one jihadist suspected in the East Africa bombings had "...informed the FBI that an extensive network of al-Qaeda sleeper agents currently exists in the U.S." He added that Rassam's abortive December 1999 attack revealed al-Qaeda supporters in the United States. His analysis, however, was based not on new threat reporting, but on past experience. The September 11th attacks fell into the void between the foreign and domestic threats. The foreign intelligence agencies were watching overseas, alert to foreign threats to U.S. interests there. The domestic agencies were waiting for evidence of a domestic threat from sleeper cells within the United States. No one was looking for a foreign threat to domestic targets. The threat that was coming was not from sleeper cells. It was foreign, but from foreigners who had infiltrated into the United States. A second cause of this disparity in response is that domestic agencies did not know what to do and no one gave them direction. Cressy told us that the CSG did not tell the agencies how to respond to the threats. He noted that the agencies that were operating overseas did not need direction on how to respond. They had experience with such threats and had a playbook. In contrast, the domestic agencies did not have a game plan. Neither the NSC, including the CSG, nor anyone else instructed them to create one. This lack of direction was evident in the July 5th meeting with representatives from the domestic agencies. The briefing focused on overseas threats. The domestic agencies were not questioned about how they planned to address the threat and were not told what was expected of them. Indeed, as noted earlier, they were specifically told they could not issue advisories based on the briefing. The domestic agency's limited response indicates that they did not perceive a call to action. Clark reflected a different perspective in an email to Rice on September fifteenth, two 2001. He summarized the steps taken by the CSG to alert domestic agencies to the possibility of an attack in the United States. Clark concluded that domestic agencies, including the FAA, knew that the CSG believed a major al-Qaeda attack was coming and could be in the United States. Although the FAA had authority to issue security directives mandating new security procedures, none of the few that were released during the summer of 2001 increased security at checkpoints or on board aircraft. The information circulars mostly urged air carriers to exercise prudence and be alert. Prior to 9-11, the FAA did present a CD-ROM to air carriers and airport authorities describing the increased threat to civil aviation. The presentation mentioned the possibility of suicide hijackings, but said that, Fortunately, we have no indication that any group is currently thinking in that direction. The FAA conducted 27 special security briefings for specific air carriers between May 1, 2001 and September 11, 2001. Two of these briefings discussed the hijacking threat overseas. None discussed the possibility of suicide hijackings or the use of aircraft as weapons no new security measures were instituted. Rice told us she understood that the FBI had tasked its 56 U.S. field offices to increase surveillance of suspected terrorists and to reach out to informants who might have information about terrorist plots. An NSC staff document at the time described such a tasking as having occurred in late June, but does not indicate whether it was generated by the NSC or the FBI. Other than the previously described April 13th communication sent to all FBI field offices, however, the FBI could not find any record of having received such a directive. The April 13th document asking field offices to gather information on Sunni extremism did not mention any possible threat within the United States and did not order surveillance of suspected operatives. The NSC did not specify what the FBI's directives should contain and did not review what had been issued earlier. Acting FBI Director Picard told us that in addition to his July 19th conference call, he mentioned the heightened terrorist threat in individual calls with the special agents in charge of field offices during their annual performance review discussions. In speaking with agents around the country, we found little evidence that any such concerns had reached FBI personnel beyond the New York field office. The head of counterterrorism at the FBI, Dale Watson, said he had many discussions about possible attacks with Kofer Black at the CIA. They had expected an attack on July 4th. Watson said he felt deeply that something was going to happen. But he told us the threat information was nebulous. He wished he had known more. He wished he had had 500 analysts looking at Osama bin Laden threat information instead of two. Attorney General Ashcroft was briefed by the CIA in May and by Picard in early July about the danger. Picard said he met with Ashcroft once a week in late June through July and twice in August. There is a dispute regarding Ashcroft's interest in Picard's briefings about the terrorist threat situation. Picard told us that after two such briefings, Ashcroft told him that he did not want to hear about the threats anymore. Ashcroft denies Picard's charge. Picard says he continued to present terrorism information during further briefings that summer, but nothing further on the chatter the U.S. government was receiving. The Attorney General told us he asked Picard whether there was intelligence about attacks in the United States and that Picard said no. Picard said he replied that he could not assure Ashcroft that there would be no attacks in the United States, although the reports of threats were related to overseas targets. Ashcroft said he therefore assumed the FBI was doing what it needed to do. He acknowledged that in retrospect this was a dangerous assumption. He did not ask the FBI what it was doing in response to the threats and did not task it to take any specific action. He also did not direct the INS, then still part of the Department of Justice, to take any specific action. In sum, the domestic agencies never mobilized in response to the threat. They did not have direction and did not have a plan to institute. The borders were not hardened. Transportation systems were not fortified. Electronic surveillance was not targeted against a domestic threat. State and local law enforcement were not marshaled to augment the FBI's efforts. The public was not warned. The terrorists exploited deep institutional failings within our government. The question is whether extra vigilance might have turned up an opportunity to disrupt the plot. As seen in Chapter 7, al operatives made mistakes. At least two such mistakes created opportunities during 2001, especially in late August. End of Chapter 8.1 Recording by Leanne Howlett